We turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. We hear the inspired word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope 
might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 18 through 21. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we look at the sufferings that Jesus endured for our sake. In this season of the year, as we look forward to celebrating his crucifixion and resurrection, we prepare to consider and to meditate on the sufferings he endured for us. He died as our substitute in our place. He died in our place that we might be holy. Now we saw the command in the previous verses to holiness. That holiness is not something uncertain. That holiness is sure. Why is that holiness so sure? Because Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sin in the place of his sheep to make his sheep holy. We belong to a redeemed people. That's the point here of the apostle. Now tragically, many people in our day and age see no need for redemption. Redemption implies bondage. It implies captivity to sin. It implies a payment that's made to rescue one from that captivity. Tragically, many don't see their sin as that which is so serious. They don't see their sin as that which would put them into captivity to the devil and in bondage. And they then don't see a need for a Savior. Joyful are those who know the horror of their sin and know the wonder of the redemption that God has ordained. And that's the joy of which Peter here speaks. And that's the wonder of our text. Now remember the purpose for which Peter is writing all of these remarkable things about Jesus and about the work of Jesus Christ. The life of God's people here on earth is hard. You know that. I know that. We face challenges. We face struggles. We live in turbulent times. What will keep and what will preserve God's children in the midst of all the uncertainties and all the troubles in which we find ourselves? Nothing can fill the soul of the weary pilgrim with awe and with joy as much as contemplating the glorious purpose of God 
through Jesus Christ, of redemption. That's the truth that thrills the heart and the soul of the weary pilgrim. As he finds himself in the midst of the struggles of life, I have been eternally destinated by God through Jesus Christ who is manifest through all of history, who is sent to Calvary to pay the price of my atonement fully to satisfy for all my sin. And then in time, has given me to know by faith that wonder that it's mine. My sins, every last one of them, have been paid for. That's the comfort. That's the hope of the child of God. That's the motivation for holiness. To these people in the midst of hardship, called to be holy, the apostle says, ye know that ye were redeemed. And beloved, that's the glorious message that we hear this evening. Ye know that ye were redeemed. It's a wonder that we were created. It's a wonder that we've been born. It's equally a wonder that God created this world and gave us a place to live within it. But here's the greatest wonder. That Jehovah God, in His love and mercy, looked upon us, a sinful people, and purchased us. He bought us with the price of His own Son. This is the wonder that distinguishes His children from the rest of the world to all eternity. And this is the truth that comforts us and inspires us to live unto Him. We look at that, redeemed by blood. No, first of all, the redemption. Secondly, the great cost, the blood of God's own Son. And finally, the fruit then of that wonder. Ye were not redeemed, the apostle says, with corruptible things. Now, what is redemption? Redemption has to do with paying the price necessary to deliver someone. And that's the idea here that's being set forth. A prisoner or a slave would be redeemed by someone paying the price that that one was worth and setting that one free. If that prisoner, if that slave had stolen something and was captured, then his redemption was higher because now he had to repay everything that was stolen. But a price paid generally with silver and with gold would accomplish then that one's deliverance. He would now be set free. And if someone would catch him and say, hey, hold on, aren't you a slave? Don't you have to go back? He'd say, no, the payment was made. Gold and silver were laid down in my place, and now I'm free. Now, God gave pictures of that repeatedly through the history of his church. Egypt was redeemed from bondage, or Israel was redeemed from bondage in Egypt through Moses. And that redemption was a marvelous wonder. God performed it through ten mighty plagues. God demonstrated His power and His majesty and then delivered. He brought Israel out of Egypt and delivered them into the land of Canaan, a picture of the bliss and glory of the new Jerusalem. Egypt, a picture of sin, a picture of bondage in which God's children find themselves by nature. There was no way for Israel to escape of themselves. There's no way we can escape the bondage of sin and death. All of our actions, all our conduct just increases that sin. Central to redemption is the idea of God not only purchasing, but purchasing for Himself. So that Jehovah God 
purchased for himself a people whom he then would preserve and keep for his glory. Now we know our debt. The debt that we owed was great. We were born into sin and guilt, as we noted this morning. By virtue of our birth, we were guilty already of original sin and original pollution because of the sin of Adam. His sin passed on to the whole human race. Everyone born out of Adam, corrupt and sinful. And added to that original guilt and that original pollution then is the fact that we commit actual sins. Not only is there original sin, but then there's our actual sins that we commit. And the result then is we incur a deadly debt before God. God says, love me. And instead of loving God, we love ourselves. We pursue our own will. And so God sets before us that demand, love me. And if you don't love me, then you will be punished for your failure to love. And we find ourselves then immediately in debt to God. We're not able to make the price. We're not able to make the payment. What is it that God requires? Absolute perfection. Perfect obedience. We stand before God in debt. And there's nothing we can do to get out of that debt of ourselves. And so we try to find someone else. Maybe another creature. Maybe another person who has done sufficient good deeds, is able to bail us out. Maybe they've done enough to save themselves, and they can also save us. That's the Roman Catholic Church's imagination, that there are people who not only are so holy of themselves that they're able to save and come up with enough good works for themselves, but they also can come up with extra. And so indulgences are sold, by which then you purchase the good deeds of someone else that will assist you in your deliverance. We reject that idea. We know that no one can save themselves, not even with the help of God's grace and with Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's no possibility of there being of any benefit to anyone else. We were given over, the apostle says here, to the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. How were those fathers working and living? Vanity, idleness, pursuing their own lust, their own will, their own desires. And Peter isn't just talking here about converts from heathendom. It's true that there were those who were converts from heathendom, had been walking in gross sins. But he's also talking to those in the realm of the church who had been brought up within the church. This is the description of all God's children apart from grace. Our lives are directed to the devil. Our lives are directed to feed on the lusts of the flesh. Our lives by nature are vain, spiritually void of any value. Wicked, perverse, empty. And that isn't just something that happens accidentally or because we're victims of some circumstances. This is the way we were born. This is the way we're brought into the world. We inherit it from our parents. And regardless of how godly, how Christian our parents were, they passed on to us natures that were depraved, dead in trespasses, and in sins. So that in that depravity, we're prone to all evil, idolatry, immorality, every wicked way. God demands an eternity in hell for our involvement in that vain conversation of our fathers. 
And everyone born is guilty of that in Adam. God says, I've redeemed you. I paid the price that was necessary. I spilled the blood of my own son for you and in your place. That's the marvelous wonder here. The only possibility of being delivered is that Jehovah God would provide a Savior. One who is very God, so that He was capable of delivering us, and one who is very man to represent us. God gives us the Emmanuel. God with us in Jesus Christ. And beloved, this is the only way we can know comfort in the midst of our fears. We don't appreciate the horror of our situation often. The situation that is ours by nature. Our sins demand of us death and hell. Our life is full of fears, but are we ever faced and confronted with the horror of that fear because of sin? Have you ever trembled because of your sin and your sinfulness? Not just because you got caught, but because you realize your sin is sin against the creator of heaven and earth, the God who made all things and who is the judge who will stand again on the last day. And because of our sin then, we experience a fear that that God, he's going to cast me into hell. That God deserves to punish me because he's been so good to me. He's given me everything that I have. And yet, look at how I've reacted to him. Look at how I've walked. And so there's a concern sometimes that strikes us that perhaps God doesn't love me. Perhaps God will cast me off. Maybe I can't be one of his children. I've committed sins that are too great. We've known moments when the guilt of our sin so stacked up that our conscience was so heavily burdened and laden with fear before God that God perhaps had forgotten me. God gives in this passage freedom from all those fears. Here's the freedom from all that fear and despair. I have redeemed you. I bought you. I paid the price that was necessary. Your sins have been forgiven. That's the wonder of the gospel. And it's been done freely. I sent my son in your place to pay the price for your sin. And that's the emphasis of the apostle here. What we could never do, what we would never do, God did for us in love. And the emphasis isn't just on the sacrifice of Jesus per se, but the nature of that sacrifice. That sacrifice was costly. That sacrifice was bloody. It cost his own life. And the nature of that sacrifice was such then that it was the blood of God's own lamb without blemish. And therefore, the price so high that no amount of sin can negate the payment. Because that's our concern, isn't it? But the apostle doesn't know me. The apostle doesn't know what I've done. God says, look at the price. Look at the price of the payment that I made. How can you put a price on the life of God's own perfect son? What you could never do, I did for you. And you're not your own now. You're mine. I bought you. I purchased you. 
unto myself. We belong to God by virtue of that wonder of grace. What a wonder! And what a liberating experience for the child of God. This is the joy in the midst of heaviness. This is the wonder of the love of God that lifts us as we live as weary pilgrims in the midst of this life. I belong to God. The ransom has been paid. There's no going back with God. He will not hold my sin against me any longer. It's paid for. It's covered. Jesus Christ took it all. And I go forward then with quiet confidence in His perfect work. Now there's also a humbling aspect to that. I belong to God. And what that means then is that God has a right to do with me as He pleases. My husband is not mine, but God's. My wife is not mine, but God's. My parents belong to God. My children are God's. All that I have belongs to God and is to be used for His glory. And He owns us then as His possessions. And as His beloved possessions, at times, He leads us through the fires and through the waters. He leads us through the trial of faith, the heaviness of temptations. He leads us through difficult ways, ways unknown to us, but paths in which He knows are necessary for us to enjoy the fullness of that bliss and glory. You belong to Jesus Christ. I belong to Christ. And I am a servant then to Him who loved me from all eternity and who loves His children with such a great love that He bought us with the blood of His own Son and now brings us into His family. In the past, when a slave had a good master, that slave had a good life. When the master pledged to take care of him, the master would provide all of his food, the master would provide a house for him to live in, the master would take care of his family, he would protect him. That slave didn't have anything to worry about. He knew that he was working for a master, but he knew that master was there for him, and that master would provide him with everything that was necessary. Beloved, your and my master is Jehovah God, our good shepherd. He's a good master. He loves and he cares for us. We're his blood-bought children. And therefore, we have nothing to worry about. As our shepherd, he leads and guides us as those who are his precious sheep to the glory that awaits. Now the apostle says, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the earth, of the world. What a marvelous wonder that God had ordained this work of redemption before even He established the world, before He created all things. Now there are those that struggle with that terminology because they say, well, how could there have been time prior to time? How can there be something before the beginning of time? But we realize God is here speaking of the fact that God, in His counsel, had ordained and planned all of this. So that Jesus' death was not some accident. It was not God having to come up with plan B because, oh no, look at what man did. Now I have to switch gears and try to figure out a way to rescue Him. God had ordained this wonder from all eternity. And God ordained that this sacrifice would be the means by which He would redeem and deliver His children. 
This was the way that God had determined to show forth His glory. Christ set up from everlasting. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ then anchored an eternal election, eternal predestination, God's foreknowledge, which we've already noted in the passage. Take that truth away and you can't have the cross. You can't have a redemption. You can't have a redemption that's sure, that's certain. This is the link in the golden chain of salvation, beginning in God's counsel already. God ordained Christ as the one whom he would send and would give as payment for sin. The fact that Christ is first in God's counsel is the idea of supralapsarianism, the idea that God did not bring Christ in later at some point, but God had Christ already ordained at the beginning of his thoughts and contemplations with regard to salvation. And therefore, in God's counsel, Christ is central. And Christ is the one around whom everything revolves with regard to our salvation. God's gift of a Savior, then, is in no regard for man or for the works of men. It has nothing to do with anything I've merited, anything I've done. Man could do nothing to save himself or cause God to perform this wonder. The source of this wonder of redemption is God's good pleasure in God's counsel before we were even born. God knew the wonder of Christ. What Christ would do for whom He would send Him. And God ordained then that man would fall and that God would send a Savior who would deliver and rescue him from that fall. In that regard, we must not think that the book of Leviticus determined what Calvary would look like. Calvary determined the book of Leviticus. As Calvary existed already in God's mind, and God ordained then the whole of the Old Testament to be written with a view to laying out the wonder of that which He had eternally determined in His counsel. So that Leviticus, the book, provides us with a True key to understanding the death of the cross. What is that key? The innocent is substituted for the guilty. Though we struggle to read through the book of Leviticus, that's the point that Leviticus is driving home. God provides the innocent one in the place of those who are guilty. And so they had to take a lamb. They had to take a turtle dove that had done nothing wrong. And that lamb had to die in their place as substitute for their sin. This is the sense that we have to understand too, the sufferings and the death of our Redeemer. He gave himself up as the innocent one, substituting himself for those who were guilty. He didn't just die for one or two, for the whole body of God's church, as many as the sand on the seashore, as much as the stars in heaven. The event of the cross would be impossible to explain without divine revelation. God gives us this plain revelation in order for us to understand the wonder of it all. That he took the place of guilty men. He did what they were bound to do. He suffered what they were to suffer. But he did it without sin. He did it perfectly in order to establish their pardon and the certainty of their salvation. 
And God did so in a manner that's not partial to anyone. It doesn't matter how rich, how poor one is. One's abilities don't matter. All are guilty. All are undeserving. All are in need of redemption. God doesn't send Jesus Christ because of anything of me, because of anything I did to make myself worthy. God's choice is based on pure, free grace and nothing else. In love, He ordained a Redeemer. And we say, why me? Why did He choose me as the one for whom that Redeemer would die? Beloved, to all eternity, that's going to be our praise and our thanksgiving. There was no reason other than His good pleasure. And not only did He die, but He poured out His blood as my sacrifice. The priests had been offering all of these animals throughout the Old Testament. None of those animals could save from sin. But they all pointed to the Lamb of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, who made that payment. The great cost, then, that the Apostle sets before us is the precious blood of Christ. Blood, we know, is the life of all flesh. If you give up your blood, you die. Life is man's supreme possession and God's supreme gift. To give up one's life is to give up everything one has. And that's what Jesus did for those whom the Father gave him. Now, mere blood could not save, but the blood of the perfectly obedient Son of God signified not only that he died, but that he also went to hell in order to suffer the burden of guilt and shame in our place. Jesus, therefore, gave the one sacrifice of intrinsic value and worth. Again, what value can you put on the Son of God? How can you put a value on God's own only begotten Son, the one who was in the bosom of the Father. That's the one that He gave. And Jesus willingly became that sacrificial lamb. That's the wonder, beloved, of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus as the anointed of God. Notice the emphasis here is on Christ. The anointed of God, the one who was chosen by God as our representative is the one that's given up. All the silver, all the gold, all the possessions of this world cannot compare to the value of the only begotten Son of God. Gold is precious, but its price fluctuates. Right now it might be running at around 1800 1900 an ounce, but we know in a year or so, it could be worth only maybe 800 900 an ounce. The things of this world fluctuate in value. But the life of Jesus Christ, how can you put a value on that? How can you give a value to the Son of God? His precious blood was spilled as the price of redemption. And the point then is to emphasize If you were redeemed by gold, perhaps someone later could say, hold on, not enough was paid for your redemption. Because after all, gold is worthless now. More is required. And then our redemption would be called into question. But there is no possibility of our redemption being called into question because the value that was paid is so precious that it does not and cannot ever change. In order to make you and me holy... Christ's blood had to be shed. 
in order to secure our place in heaven, Jesus Christ had to die in our place. As of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. So that not only is the apostle here speaking of the violence and the shedding of blood that took place as a result of this sacrifice, but he's talking too about the way the value of the sacrifice is brought before us. It was perfect. It was perfect obedience to his Father. And again, we know the history of Jesus willingly giving himself up to those who were there to capture him. Willingly giving himself up in our place. The sinless one alone was able to offer himself without blemish, without fault, redeeming his people from destruction and hell, from their vain walk. And that which made the blood of Jesus so precious again is his sinlessness. He had never committed any sin. He was the innocent, holy one. He's the righteous one. He was like a lamb in meekness, gentleness, purity, suffering, with no complaint. But he was innocent. He was offered. The sacrifice was not offered in vain. It didn't just make salvation possible. By the death and shedding of the blood of the Son of God, God redeemed every last one of those for whom Christ died. And He made His people holy. Holiness was the goal. And this is how it was attained. In Christ. If Jesus' death had not served the purpose of saving His people from their sin, it could not be followed with the wonder of re of the resurrection. But he arose. And the result of the resurrection is he's no longer in his sin. The bondage to sin and death is broken. And he's been raised for our justification that we might be declared righteous before God. Beloved, to despise so great a salvation is to despise the precious blood of Jesus Christ. To repudiate the grace of the gospel is to say the blood of Jesus Christ is of no value. Our unworthiness to receive something of such value stares us in the face. And the apostle sets this forth before us for a very practical reason. He's not intent merely on setting forth the way of our salvation, which we see he's doing. But he's setting forth the great redemption price in the context of a life of holiness in the midst of this world. And the subject then is still our walk, our conversation, our life of sanctification in the midst of this world. We who have the Spirit of Jesus Christ in our hearts, who call upon God as our Father, must keep in mind, this was the price of redemption that was paid. This is how you have been purchased. And doing that causes us then to live with the loins of our mind girded up in holiness, in godliness, and in thankfulness. This is the motivation to live a life of thankful praise unto God. Without this truth, our walk, our conversation in this world would merely be legalistic. It would be a seeking of our own glory, trying to make ourselves look better than the others around us. We would walk in holiness not for God and not for His glory, but just for ourselves and seek our own salvation. Beloved, this is the truth that motivates us 
in the midst of heaviness, to live for Him, to extol Him, to magnify His name. My life is not about me. It's about this one who bought me, who now owns me, whose I am and to whom I belong. And now I am to live out of that wonder for Him and for His glory. Beloved, this is the comfort, the only comfort that we can experience as God's children in the midst of this world that's given over to sin, death, and hell. I've been bought with a price. The precious price of the blood of God's own Son. He's redeemed me and He's rescued me then out of the bondage of sin and death and hell. And now I live unto Him. And I live to show forth His praise. And the power of that redemption is evident within me in that I will live a holy life. I will pursue holiness. Overwhelmed, beloved, by the knowledge of such a great love, we are compelled to that thankfulness. The fruit is set forth here in our text. For you who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. Jesus Christ in all His glory in these last days is made manifest for you. Now the idea of made manifest is beautiful. It involves an active subject. Jesus actively making Himself known. In the Old Testament, Jesus was present through all the prophets, through the law, through the sacrifices. But He was not yet manifest, made known in all of His glory. They knew He was coming. They were living according to the promise. They were saved in hope. But now in the fullness of time, God pierced through the clouds that hid Him from the sight of man, made Him be born of a woman. He walked among men. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was raised from the dead. He ascended up into heaven. And He poured out His Spirit upon His church. He made Himself manifest. He revealed Himself to us in all of the wonder of His love. And He's manifest through the apostles, through the preaching. As the preaching of the gospel goes forth, that proclamation is the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised from the dead, as the ransom for His children. And the call then is, repent, believe on Jesus Christ alone. He is manifest for you. You who are the children of God, you who live in the midst of this evil world as pilgrims and strangers, you who are persecuted, you who face many trials, many afflictions, many struggles, you who struggle with sin, with guilt, with shame, Jesus poured out His bloody sacrifice for you who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. Again, beloved, the love of God in Jesus Christ, then, is what controls your and my life. Your life is not about earthly things. Your life is not identified by your discouragements, your troubles. The driving principle of life is not self and all of your interests. The love of God is the power by which you are driven so that you live not to yourselves, but you live unto God. When you wonder whether or not 
it's worth it to be a part of Christ's church. Whether or not it's worth it to live as a Christian in the midst of this world. Whether or not it's worth it to train your children and to send them to Christian schools. Whether it's worth it to support this church. Whether it's worth it to help other people out. And don't we think about that sometime? We're faced with situations and circumstances and we think, is it really worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my effort to go help out this person or to go assist this one? Is it really worth my time and effort to send my children to a Christian school? Is it really worth it to be a member of this church and to have to support the various causes of this church? Beloved, think of the value that God gave for you. How can you compare anything that you have or are to Jesus Christ who gave himself in your place, who became poor in order that you might become rich? You owe your all to him. I owe my all to him. I don't pull back and say, the sacrifice, the time, it's not worth it. Beloved, he bore the wrath of hell in your place and in mine. What kind of cost in terms of your time or money, can begin to compare to that. How can you put a value on that again, is what God here says to us through the inspired apostle. We owe Him our all. Here's another fruit, beloved, an application. When you think of the sins of others, and those sins begin really to bother you, and you're getting all exercised, hung up on what others have done to you, or the sins that they've committed, then, beloved, you need to look away from yourself. Don't focus on the wrongs you've experienced. What did you do to Christ? What did Christ have to do for you? Your sins cost Him His life. And now you're going to get hung up with this little bit that someone did against you? He was holy, and He went to the cross for you. Turn your eyes away from yourself and focus on your Savior and what He did on your behalf. And in that spirit then, we forgive even as we've been forgiven. When you lay hold on the holiness of God and the wonder of the sacrifice, then you live in the consciousness of thankful praise. You live out of Him. You confess, I'm not my own. The life that I live is the life of Christ. Christ's life is living in and through me. And I confess my sin. I walk humbly before Him. And I walk in holiness because I live out of Him. My body is not my own. It belongs to Him. And so that another application here, another fruit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Next time you're inclined to say something sharp with your tongue, perhaps it's against your spouse or against your children or against your parents, think about this. Your tongue belongs to Jesus. And you are called to use that tongue in His service. Not in your service, in His service. When you're inclined to look upon a man or a woman to lust, remember, your eyes, they don't belong to you. They belong to Christ. And you're to use those eyes for the glory of God. Glorify God with your members. Your body and your soul belong to Christ. 
And so, beloved, this is what we have to contemplate. When you sin, you're esteeming yourself above the blood of Jesus Christ. You're saying, this sin means more to me than the blood of Jesus Christ. And you're saying, I don't hold Jesus' blood in high regard. I esteem myself and my desires more than what God did for me in Jesus Christ. The apostle says, no, esteem the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of redemption. Don't profane that blood of the covenant by which you have been sanctified. You belong to Christ. Now live unto him with all you are in thankful praise for that glorious redemption. The apostle adds that your faith and hope might be in God. Peter knows how often our faith and our hope rest in ourselves, in the circumstances of our lives. So easy it is for us to determine our value and our worth based on how we feel, how things are going in our lives. The apostle here, by the inspiration of God, again says... You need to know that your life in Jesus Christ doesn't change day by day. It isn't based on your emotions. It's not based on your feelings. Your salvation is sure. The price of redemption has been paid. Faith and hope are beautifully tied with love. And in the Bible, those three are often put together. Faith and hope, both finding their source in God's love according to 1 Corinthians 13. Faith is first. It's a gift from God by which God unites us to himself. Faith is the source of hope. God works hope in our lives as a result of that union with him. And by faith, then, we believe in God. We believe in God's faithfulness. That faith and that hope flow out of the love with which God loved us In Jesus Christ. And therefore they are certain. They are sure. Faithfulness to God. Is only in Jesus Christ. Apart from him we're nothing. This beloved thrills the believer. And this is your and my anchor. In the midst of all the changes. And all the struggles of this life. What is it that can anchor the soul of the believer. In the midst of all the uncertainties and challenges of life. I lose my job. The economy is uncertain. All these troubles are confronting me. What is the anchor that holds us? The truth of the gospel and the marvelous wonder of my redemption. I've been redeemed. I've been bought with a price. My value is not based on the circumstances of my life. My value is based on who I am by God's grace. And so that truth fuels our love and our obedience and our faithfulness. Through Jesus Christ and the wonder of redemption, we live new and holy lives. We delight in the things of his kingdom. We live in the confident hope of everlasting life and fellowship with the living God. Beloved, what an incentive God gives to his children in the midst of this world. You're not your own. You belong to me. And I will keep you through this wonder of redemption. I will keep you. And I will bring you to the glory that I purchased for you. All because you're mine. And because you're precious in my sight. Now just think about this. Would you pay a million dollars for a glass of water? 
We wouldn't pay a million dollars for something that's not worth hardly anything. So also God. God didn't give the blood of His Son for something that was not precious. And therefore, beloved, you and I are valuable. God sent His own precious Son for me. That means my value is found in God and His determination of me. My value is not found in my sports ability, my athletic ability. My value is not found in what other people think about me or what they say about me. My value is based on redemption and the wonder that the blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for me. Beloved, life on earth is hard. But this is not where our worth and our identity lie. Our worth and identity is found in God's everlasting love and the precious work of redemption. Amen. Our Father who 